Showtime Sports presents Showtime Boxing with Eric Raskin and Kieran Mulvaney. Hello and welcome to Showtime Boxing with Raskin and Mulvaney with my co-host Eric Raskin. I am Kieran Mulvaney. And Eric, I hope you have your sunnies and your togs ready, mate, because uh, Showtime announced during Saturday night's broadcast that the junior middleweight battle between Tim Zhu and Tony Harrison taking place in Zhu's hometown of Sydney, Australia, will be broadcast live on Showtime on March 11th, US time. I reckon the Bruce's and Sheila's at HQ would have to be a right bunch of Gronkos and Goliaths not to send us there to podcast on site, probably for the full week. Fair dinkum, right? Uh, fair dinkum, certainly, certainly. Very fair dinkum. Uh, <laughs> boy, you, you have me feeling like a real Aussie lingo casual right now. I've uh, I've got, uh, I got put another shrimp on the Barbie. I got that one. And I've got, that's not a knife. This is a knife. Uh, and, and that's about it. Can, can you tell I was an impressionable kid when Crocodile Dundee came out? <laughs> Though the funny thing about they put another shrimp on the bra barbie is in Australia they call them prawns, mate. Oh, they don't even say shrimp. Wow. That was strict for a US audience. So, yeah, so, that's yeah, that's a yeah. good way to be able to to tell right off the bat whether someone is remotely authentic or, or not. So 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 some of those words that you said, I, I, I get the gist of, of a lot of them through the context clues, but I guess the one I'm most curious for you to explain, Bruce's and Sheila's, that's their generic terms for a guy and a gal? Yes, ma'am. Yes, sir. <laughs> okay, interesting. And, uh, and dr- drongos and galas uh, al- almost sounds like clockwork orange language. Oh, it does, actually. Yeah. Yes, it does. Uh, no, they're both um, uh, loud species of birds that are also used mm. as terms for, you know, uh, you're an idiot, you're a, right. you're a moron. Thing, so. <laughs> All right, interesting. Uh, well, anyway, yeah, I- I'm going to say that uh, that us podcasting remotely from from home for the zoo harrison fight uh i'm gonna say that's about a minus 100,000 favorite I, I i suspect that the bruces and the sheilas will save our travel budget for other occasions that don't require 10,000 air miles mm, yes that might be right actually and yeah. on reflection <laughs> I, may have, I may have gotten briefly overexcited by the prospect Un- understandable i mean you have this incredible ability to go in and out of your various accents including australian and uh, you want to be able to put it to use, but uh, but I I don't think it's happening that week. Right. Although of course you know what it would take was the first Bruce or Sheila to listen to my attempt at an accent, and I'd be considered a right galah, and that would be the end of it. <laughs> sure, my Australian accents absolutely as terrible as most of my other accents. Yeah, I'm. It worked for me, but then again, I am I am a galah, so. You know. <laughs> Um, coming up on the show, our old friend Stephen Breadman Edwards, no galah him, uh, joins us to talk about his fighter Caleb Plant's clash with David Benavides on March 25th, among other topics. We'll look at the news, including the return of Anthony Joshua, and we will preview next week's showbox. But first, to San Antonio, Texas, where our most recent podcast guest, prior to Breadman, uh, Oshaki Foster, produced an excellent start and a storming finish, and a pretty darn good middle, too to claim a junior lightweight belt. Yeah, when Oshaki Foster first appeared on Showtime as a young prospect on Showbox, he froze and lost his undefeated record. Seven years later, he rose to the occasion and took the undefeated record of Ray Vargas, winning a unanimous decision by scores of 116-112, 117-111, and 119-109, and finally burying the Showtime boxing with Raskin and Mulvaney <laughs> curse once and for all. Uh, with the win, Foster improves his record to 20-2 and with 11 knockouts, runs his win streak to 10, and picks up his first alphabet belt, while Vargas suffers his first loss and falls to 36-1 and with 22 KOs. Those are the basic facts of what happened. Let's get into the details and the analysis. Kieran, how did you score the fight? How did Foster pull off this mild upset win? 
And where does he fit in the 130-pound division now? One of the things that Foster did, it seemed to me, was what no one's really been able to do to Vargas before and beat him, at least in part, from the outside. Uh, Vargas is used to being able to control the range in his fights, you know, to keep his opponents at the end of his jab and follow that up with, with straight power punches as appropriate. And he could do that because he was very tall for a 122-pounder and 126-pounder. And he could use those physical advantages, combined with his natural ability, to dominate with as much or often as little passion as he wanted to deploy. But what, what Foster did, it seemed to me, was sort of counterintuitively stand outside of that range and use his kind of mongoose-like reflexes to wait and wait, force Vargas to reach with his punches and then spring into action with his rapid-fire combinations. And, and he was smart enough... I thought, to commit when he wanted to and not when Vargas tried to trick him into it. I saw there were quite a few times where Vargas was doing a lot of fainting, making it look as if he was about to throw. And that could have been partly because he wasn't sure about his timing. But I, th I also got the impression he was trying to bait Foster into countering before he'd actually yeah. even thrown. Um, but Foster didn't fall for any of it. Uh, he kept his focus razor sharp all the way through. Um, and as Vargas tried to find a way through, he just became sloppier and sloppier at times, you know, launching punches from long distance and missing and leaving himself open and off balance. And, and, and Foster was able to take advantage. Um, there was a period, sort of, I guess, around what, rounds five through nine, when Vargas was able to settle more into a kind of rhythm and range. He did get his jab flowing quite well for a while. Um, but even then, I thought Foster was able to take a round here and there to maintain the lead. Uh, I think I had Foster up 4-1 through 5. After 9 on my books, that had closed to a 5-4 advantage, with Vargas seemingly having the momentum. But then Foster just stepped it back up a notch and closed the show impressively. Uh, he swept the final three rounds of my card. So I had, it, I had him scoring a 116-112 win that I think was actually as generous to Vargas as it was possible to be on the scorecards. I, I don't see that there's any way to have it any closer and, and none of the official judges did um as for where foster stands now among the 130 pounders he's clearly now near the top and he's probably going to be eyeing the oscar valdez emmanuel navarrete winner for mm. full bragging rights in the division and then as he indicated to us last week uh, i could see him now wanting to try to go for the big names five pounds heavier i, I think still you'd make him an underdog in just about all of those matchups but not a big underdog and very many of them Right now, Shaki Foster seems to have the quiet confidence of a man who has turned his life and his career around, has yeah. seen what a difference it makes when you are fully and completely dedicated to this sport. Like he said to us, that was the big difference. I think it was you asking that question, you know, what's the big difference since you had those two losses? And it was just like taking it seriously, really focusing on it. And the uh, Shaki Foster who's gone about 10 and 0 since his last loss very very different fighter from the guy who went 10 and 2 at the start of his career he's still relatively fresh and he clearly believes great things await him he's got that combination of complete self-belief now momentum skills talent um yeah uh, i think he can he can absolutely make some noise in both the 130 and indeed 135 pound divisions and he's going to start getting those opportunities now um but what do you think that vargas failed to do that he needed to do should he actually conversely go back to 126? And at 32 years old, is he very suddenly at a crossroads in his career, Ray Vargas? So I guess in, in terms of what he failed to do, I, I mean, 
his big failure was failing to fight an opponent with a style that allows him to do what he likes to do, which is outbox people. Um, Foster had the faster hands. He has great feet, tremendous defense. He, he was at least partially slipping or partially blocking almost everything. So Vargas was kind of going to have to outfight him. And, and that's not really Vargas's game. So, so it starts with that. Um, but once the fight is signed, I guess if I'm his trainer and I'm devising a game plan for him, knowing what I know now, having seen the fight, I'd say Vargas should have been jabbing to the chest from the start. That, that old reliable move to make sure your punches are landing and unsettle a fleet-footed opponent. Um, but honestly, Foster probably would have countered those anyway, because Vargas would have been jabbing down to throw those and leaving himself somewhat open. Um, I, I said last week that Vargas appeared um, just the slightest bit past his absolute peak of talent. I do think that bore out here that he, he was just a hair too slow and Foster was so sharp, so dialed in and, and, and getting great advice from his corner as well. Um, for what it's worth, I don't really think size and weight were a factor here. Like, I don't think Vargas looked any worse at 130 than at 126, but he can at least tell himself and tell the public that 126 is where he belongs. He does still have a belt there. Um, so I fully expect that he will return to featherweight and he still has some good wins in him, probably. Uh, but he's going to have trouble with certain styles, certain quick and slick guys. But there are plenty of Mark Magsayo types. Um, and not that he beat Magsayo easily. It was a close one. But but I, I like his chances just fine against a more predictable, offensive-minded fighter. So that's my take on Ray Vargas. Let me, let me also share a few thoughts on Foster and on this sure. fight. Um, first off, I was actually in the this-wasn't-close camp. I only gave Vargas one round. Um, I can certainly see 117, 111. 116, 112, where you had it and where Steve Farhood had it, it actually it starts to feel a bit like a reach to me. Um, <laughs> you know, obviously, if I can see 117, 111, then I don't think you're corrupt for scoring at 116, 112. But um, it didn't seem that close to me. You can look at their faces afterward and see who was landing and who wasn't. Um, not that that's a good way to judge a fight, but in this case, I think it told you a, a fair amount. You could also judge the reactions of their families in the crowd. Uh, the Vargas extended family was looking <laughs> grim. Uh, the Fosters were having a party. Uh, again, not how you score a fight, but uh, but I think it told part of the story. I think it should I think should get that that's, the, that's the way you scored from now on. Whoever's yeah. just look at, don't look at what's happening in the ring. Look at the, the family at ringside and score based on that. Listen, it would be better than some scorecards we see on occasion. Right, right. Terrence Crawford would remain unbeaten no matter what. <laughs> that's a good point. <laughs> Um, so, uh, one thing that I wanted to point out was that I, I loved, um, some advice from Foster's corner. They told him heading into round eight to switch his approach to catch and react, basically catch and counter, make Vargas pay a little more, knowing at that point in the fight that there wasn't much risk to standing in there, you know, Foster and his team trusted in his defense and, and in, in him being able to avoid the big shots. This was just a great pure boxing performance. Um, I believed Foster could win the fight, but I didn't know he could win it this convincingly without scoring some knockdowns or hurting Vargas badly. Um, great win. And um, yeah, the, the Raskin and Mulvaney curse is no more. Uh, we had shock on the pod just last week. Uh, and wow, did he make the rounds last week? Uh, he popped up on at least three other boxing podcasts that came across my feed. But uh, everyone out there, don't forget who had him on first. There you go. Exactly. He owes us.
<laughs> he does. I mean, we won this fight for him, basically. Clearly, clearly yeah. yes. Now with the what well, the uh, the whatever the complete diametric opposite of a curse is, that's 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 what we provide now. I, believe, I believe charm is the word you're looking yes. for. <laughs> there you go. All right. Um, in the co-main, former 140 pound titleist and now welterweight contender Mario Barrios stops his losing streak at two dominating Giovanni Santiago and stopping him in the eighth when Santiago's corner stepped in to save their man from what was becoming an increasingly bad beating. Um, Eric, you predicted that Barrios would be far too good for Santiago. So how was he able to be as effective as he was? And what would you like to see from him next? One thing I didn't see coming was the, the size difference. I didn't realize how much bigger Barrios was. And not that that's what won him the fight. But it did seem to play into how comfortable he felt, um, the unworried manner in which he fought. Yeah. It's hard to believe he was once a 122-pounder when, when you see him now. Um, so Barrios fought well. The The partnership with, with Bob Santos is working so far. But I think the biggest thing here was that they found the perfect get-well opponent after two straight losses. Um, Santiago, he's a very ordinary fighter, which underscores how far Adrian Broner has fallen. Uh, but that's a topic for another day. Uh, Santiago really needed to get inside. He couldn't. Uh, he doesn't have the moves or the counterpunching ability to really throw Barrios off. He did the right thing in terms of giving it his best shot in rounds three and four. He got more aggressive and he was winging the hardest shots he could, but Barrios was able to counter him before long. Santiago didn't have the gas to move his head much anymore. And once the head movement and the upper body movement stopped, Barrios really couldn't miss him by about the sixth round. And I was hoping Santiago's corner would stop it in the middle of the seventh round when it was clear the winner had been determined. They let it go a round longer than that, um, and he went down from a body shot in the eighth, and it was stopped soon after. So, and this was what Barrios needed. Uh, it didn't tell us a lot, but that's okay. Uh, he, he needed a win more than he needed a learning experience or a test. As for what I want to see from him next... Um, clearly, he's locked in at welterweight now. He's not getting down to 140 again, I don't think. We all know about the talent at the top of the division. Um, he'd be a good name for Boots Ennis to get on his resume, but that fight is bad news for Barrios. Uh, I, I think it would be a mistake to take on a challenge like that. It's weird. He's in no man's land to an extent. I, I don't think he can compete with Spence, Crawford, Boots, etc., but there's not a ton of money to be made fighting the fringe contender types. Um, but that's the group Barrios probably belongs with. And, and that's not a knock. Um, we're talking about good fighters. Raymond Villa, Cody Crowley, Rashidi Ellis, uh, the loser of Virgil Ortiz and Montestanionis. This may not be what Barrios wants to hear, but I, I think his ideal role from here on out is fighting in Showtime Championship Boxing co-features, ma making good fights against the other A-level welterweights. And if he wins a couple of those, then maybe he's back in a main event where an elite guy beats him up, but at least he makes good money. Uh, but to me, Barrios has found his level. And, you know, there are all sorts of co-feature type fights that I would like to see him in. Yeah, you know what? That's really an excellent point. And um, it's also, yeah, not a bad spot to be in for him right now he did yeah. take those two steps up came up short it's not a bad thing to maybe have a good three or four fight extended range uh you know taking on those kind of folks you get your three or four wins in a row you get your opportunity at the brass ring and if you fall short you go back to that to that sort of secondary level and there's a very good career to be made doing that <laughs> and sure. um and you know what look what if crawford and spence do both go up to 154 suddenly it's not that difficult for you to somehow 
perhaps by default become the man in the division sure. if you just you know you you play it right so uh yeah no i think that's very i think that's really good and, and i totally agree with your point that one of the key elements of the fight was that barrios had realized a short way into it that he had nothing to worry about and yeah. and you know and so much of boxing is about real estate isn't it and and and, and staking your distance and there was nothing santiago could do to stop barrios getting at exactly the right range that he could just launch these just torqued punches um power punches right at him and had no fear of anything coming back and yeah i'm with you actually i would not have minded seeing this stopped a little bit earlier i think you called a ko6 and i thought that might happen actually yeah <laughs> i thought uh, so too um, yeah and certainly it would have been nice to have seen it stopped uh, in, in the seventh but um you know hopefully he'll be okay but yeah this was what barrios needed i think that's the main thing exactly as you said this is what he needed for himself to move on to the the next stage of his career all right. Well, speaking of fights that ended in predicted rounds, let's talk about the heavyweight <laughs> opener in which Lenier Perro of Cuba remained unbeaten by taking the undefeated record of Victor Faust via eighth round TKO, which was exactly the result that you predicted last week, Karen. So I presume this means the fight unfolded exactly as you expected. Yes. I mean, I literally scripted it out, Eric. I mean, <laughs> just exactly like that. No, look, seriously, until that strange ending of which more in a moment mm -hmm. it was going actually almost the complete opposite of what i expected <laughs> and um based on what the the folks said on commentary it was the, pretty much the same for them too you and i both felt when we were talking about this that Perro looked the more natural higher ceiling prospect of the two and i was expecting him to be the more elusive to be the more accurate well he was certainly more accurate he landed a much higher percentage of punches than faust but i was very surprised that faust was by some distance the busier guy and, and Perro seemed far more reticent um, to throw and far less mobile and fluid than I'd expected. Uh, um, Faust's counter left hooks, including that one that hurt him in the third, may well have had a lot to do with that. Um, I had Faust up 68, 65 through seven and seemingly settling into a nice rhythm mm. until suddenly um, Perro broke through in that round eight. It, it was confusing initially. And, and my first thought was, that that right hand to the body at the beginning of that sequence must have broken a rib or something. And at the end of the broadcast, um, I think it was Brian Custer or maybe it was Morrow mentioned that uh, they had gotten word that they'd gone to the hospital and they were think they were suspecting that um, because it was just such a peculiar reaction for for a prize fighter to just suddenly stop like that. And clearly he was in some kind of pain or he'd had the wind knocked out of him because he wasn't even able to react to put his hands up to protect himself. He was clearly much more concerned and having his elbow right there by his ribs. Perro seemed to take a half second, like, what the hell's going on here? And then realized he had a, a an unprotected head to hit. And so yeah. he, he promptly hit it until the ref stopped it. Um, Odd fight, odd finish, five points for me. But I'm not sure it tells us very much about Perro, except that perhaps he might not be, despite the fact that he scored that win, maybe not quite as good as certainly I thought he might prove to be. Um, I, I'm not sure. What were your takeaways from that? Yeah, I had a, a similar overall thought about Perro, which was, yeah, he got this technically it was a knockout win over an undefeated guy and yet i was underwhelmed by him it was a little less than what i was uh expecting and the ending was totally weird in the moment um but then i did read a quote from faust afterwards saying that um there had been a body shot in the sixth that caused him some pain oh, and uh it's it's so it sounded like he kind of sucked it up whatever whatever 
injury that may have caused, he was able to suck it up for a bit. And then the eighth round body shot, uh, I guess, pushed him past that point. Because that eighth round body shot on its own, the right hand that they replayed over and over, it didn't really look like much on its own. Um, so that would make a little more sense if, if there was something already bothering him. And then that that shot uh put it to the next level um it was weird it was, it was basically a fight that kind of turned on one punch twice like uh you know <laughs> faust seemed to dominate more or less rounds three through seven because of that one big right to the temple that hurt Perro in the third that you mentioned uh i don't know if Perro was unable to fight his fight after that unwilling to fight his fight whatever it was um that punch basically put Faust in control. And then, you know, Faust was well-schooled, disciplined. Even when Perro would land a counter hook, Faust would counter that with his own counter yes. hook. Um, yes. he, he, and he just wasn't giving Perro many openings. And then that body shot landed and that was the beginning of the end. And then the end of the end came just a few punches later. <laughs> Very strange. Um, there is one CompuBox stat that I thought was particularly noteworthy once I saw it. Uh, at the end of the fight, Pero, he had landed 92 punches. 51 were body shots, um, uh. which is a really high percentage. Um, so, you know, I thought he was clearly losing the fight through seven rounds. I had the same score you did, but his body punching won it for him fair and square. Yeah. Um, those three results combined to keep our picks competition frozen in place. Uh, you picked faster by split decision in the main event. I picked Vargas by unanimous decision. You get two points there, and I got none. Uh, you got another two points for picking Barrios by knockout but getting the round wrong. I picked Barrios by decision and got one point. Um, but I clearly needed that fluke result or freak <laughs> result, shall we say, uh, in the opener, um, cause I netted all five points for Perro's win. You also picked a Perro KO, but in a different round for yet another two points. We were very consistent on Saturday yes. night. Uh, that netted you a total of six and I scored five in that opener for a total of six. So you maintain your one point lead, which is now 14 points to 13, sir. Clearly, the system is bad. We're awarding too many points for the random lucky dart throw that is nailing the KO round. It is a, and it is a lucky dart throw. And yet, on the other hand, and I think that sometimes, but then perhaps the fact that we so very rarely land on it, um, but it perhaps justifies it. But yeah, it's it's one of those things where you feel a little like, yeah, I got the... <laughs> Yeah, but I feel like we've both we've both benefited from and been penalized by good luck and bad luck over the over the yeah. course of the full year. These things tend to even out. So uh, yeah. 14, 13 for now. Uh, let's uh, move forward and turn our attention to next week's action. Uh, there are a few televised fight cards, uh, though. I'm not sure we need to say anything more about the Saturday fights beyond what we said when they were signed. There's an excellent fight in Nottingham, England between Lee Wood and Mauricio Lara that'll air in the late afternoon afternoon here and a few hours later Luis Neri versus Azat Hovanesian in Pomona, California uh, but our focus is on the Showbox card Friday night starting at 9 p.m. Eastern from the Stormont Vale Event Center in Topeka, Kansas, a triple header featuring six boxers with a combined very showboxy record of 68-2-1 with 33 knockouts. In the opener, a battle of unbeatens as former Division I college football player Kurt Scobie, who is 10-0 with eight KOs, 
faces Australia's John the Beast Manu, 7-0-1 with four KOs. That's an eight-rounder at 140 pounds. And in the co-main, a battle of once-beatens as Masaya Lopez of Denver, 14-1 with five KOs, takes on Edward Kid Vasquez of Fort Worth, Texas, who's 13-1 with three knockouts. That's a 10-round featherweight bout. Kieran, give the people some quick notes on these four fighters, and what can we expect from these two fights? So, Misao Lopez will be making his third appearance on Showbox. He won his first time out in 2018, but that sole career reverse to date came in 2021, also on Showbox, via sixth-round TKO to Jordan White. Um, Vasquez's sole loss came last year by controversial split decision, and he's 2-0 and since then. Um, both those guys have very good amateur backgrounds. Uh, Lopez went 50-5 and in the unpaid ranks and won both silver and golden gloves tournaments in Colorado, where he lives. Um, Vasquez compiled an amateur record of 82-8, and so this promises to be a technically solid as well as an exciting matchup um, to kick us off, uh, or rather in the co-main. And in the opener... Manu will be making his U.S. debut. He's a he's a Bruce. <laughs> yes, uh, yes, there he is. Um, he most recently scored something of an upset win over Adrian Sosa on the Haney Cambosis two undercard, and said that quote, "I am not coming halfway around the world to lose." Uh, Scobie is quite the interesting story, and I suspect we'll hear quite a bit about his background on the broadcast. As you mentioned, he's a former Division One football player. Uh, he was scouted said by the Steelers and the Rams, but when he failed to catch on with any NFL team, he turned to his first love of boxing and really made a commitment to do it full-time. At the height of the pandemic, he bought himself a cheap one-way ticket to New York, walked into Gleason's gym, and has been working there and, uh, and dedicating himself full-time to boxing ever since. Um, the main event, is a battle of unbeaten 154-pounders as Ardriel Bosman Holmes, who's 12-0 with five KOs, takes on upset artist Ismail Milo Villarreal, who is 12-0 with eight KOs over 10 rounds. Eric, give us the quick summary of these two guys and make your pick. So you referred to Villarreal as an upset artist. Uh, I'll start with him and... I'd say I'm not quite ready to call him that yet, but I would be ready if he wins this one, because that would make it two in a row over undefeated, highly regarded opponents. Uh, his last fight, he scored a sixth round stoppage over 13-0 LaShawn Rodriguez. He dropped Rodriguez in rounds three and six, and it was stopped after the second knockdown. A huge win for Villarreal, who hadn't previously made much of a name for himself. He's from the Bronx. He's 25. Decent amateur career with two New York Golden Gloves titles. He's a college graduate, and notably, he's of Dominican descent, and during the pandemic, he went to the Dominican Republic and stayed active fighting there with three fights in a little over six months in, in 2021 and 2022 after, like a lot of boxers, he had been inactive most of 2020 and into 2021. My one-sentence scouting report from watching some, some clips, he's well-schooled tight technique, bends his knees a lot, goes to the body well, and always looks in great shape. Uh, Ardrail Holmes we're more familiar with since he won the Showbox main event in Deadwood 11 months ago, taking a unanimous 10-round decision over Vernon Brown to end a layoff of more than two years. Holmes, a 28-year-old Southpaw from Flint, Michigan, was a highly decorated amateur. He's the more highly touted prospect here. And uh, very important, we mentioned this uh, last time he fought on Showbox, he was Clarissa Shields' prom date. Uh, that's a heck of a piece of trivia to have on your side. Um, he's tall, uh, but he's a good infighter for his height. Uh, he's really versatile. 
could probably be fairly dominant boxing from the outside. Uh, but you could either say he lacks the discipline to do that, or he just likes to mix it up and rumble a bit. Either way, uh, against Brown, he got away at times from an approach that could have made the fight easy, but he still won comfortably. Um, so time to make my pick. And uh, this is a close one. It really is. I, I've been impressed with what I've seen out of both guys. But Holmes has the greater pedigree. He has more options in the ring. He should be able to pile up the points. I think I'm probably making the obvious pick here, but I'm going with Holmes by close-ish, competitive, unanimous decisions, something in the 7-3 or 6-4 to four range. It'll be a tough fight against Villarreal, but I think the boss man wins. How about you? Yeah, look, I mean, Holmes looks like the more naturally blue-chip prospect. Um, if I were to be a bit negative i wonder how high his ceiling will ultimately prove to be he feels like he's one of these guys who like the prospect level races ahead of a lot of other prospects because he has that great natural ability and yet kind of then more rapidly bumps up against the ceiling and ultimately some of the others catch up to him you know later on in their career um you know he, he his punches flow very very smoothly um, there are a bit too many just slightly predictable southpaw jab straight left combos. And if I am to be critical, he does sometimes seem to reach a little bit with that power left, throws it from a little bit too far back. I'd like to see him step maybe just a little half step closer to his opponents, actually. So he's a little bit more compact when he's throwing some of those punches. But he looks like he's a he's definitely a, a real natural talent there. Um and he is, he just feels like he's the smoother operator, if you will, um, in the ring. Villarreal, yeah, the, the note that I made, very similar to yours, he seems like the more earnest pro, right? The guy who doesn't have the flash or the speed of some, but who makes up for it with hard work and a good, solid technical skill set. You know who, watching him, his boxing style reminds me just a wee bit of Miguel Cotto. Uh, hmm. Chin tucked upper body leaning slightly forward, working behind that jab, and especially that short curling left hook. Um, I found this a little bit of a tough pick too, because on the one hand, I thought to myself, look, Holmes is just clearly the more natural talent here. He could absolutely just pile up rounds against Villarreal, and he could, right? He could absolutely just pile up the rounds here, and Villarreal could have nothing, you know, nothing to respond with. Or he could get dragged into something which may be more likely... I have a hunch that while Villarreal may fall into a early hole of say three and zero, he may start reeling Holmes in a little bit and slowing him to the you know to the body, working him over by the end. The instinct, the natural call here is to do exactly what you did and pick Holmes by a, a points decision, and he could well end up being a, a wide one, but. I can't pick against someone who reminds me a little bit of a <laughs> So yeah. I'm going to have him scoring a come-from-behind majority decision. That's Villarreal by majority decision. All right. So uh, I was uh, starting to settle myself in for at the, when, the way you started, that you were going to have the same pick as me, and I was going to be able to, to declare that uh, after next week I'm still up one point. But no, you swerved. Uh, you could take the lead next week, or you could fall farther fall behind. See? Daring to be great, Eric. That's what it's all about. <laughs> Daring to be... I'm not... Eh, great, great strong for what you just did. You made a mild <laughs> upset pick. <laughs> Daring to be a half notch above 
what's expected. How's that? Daring to disagree with my podcast co-host for both of us. That's always a <laughs> that is a inducing step into the abyss. Yes, we're getting crazy now. All right. Uh, because we have a long show this week, and because we need to get this recorded and edited before Eric watches his favorite superb owls. Yes, I have to make that joke yet again. Every year. Um, we are bumping our discussion of last week's top five challenge to next week. But we know you all love the fight game. So we're going to turn to that now. Uh, I, I got to say, though, Kieran, I, I don't like you yes. blaming this on me, skipping the top five. You're ducking my top five challenge from last week. You couldn't cope with the pressure of trying to narrow down the, the top five Bradley, Frotch, and Marquez fights. You're scared. That's what's happening here. Pressure? We'll see about pressure. Let's see <laughs> see how many guesses it takes you okay. to get this fight. Let's do your, do your worst. <laughs> oh, I'm very good at doing my worst. I do my worst <laughs> consistently, week after week. You know that. <laughs> good point. <laughs> all right. All right. <clears throat> Clue number one. One day after I turned 12 years old, this fight saw a future Hall of Famer defeat his challenger via fourth round KO. Okay. Future Hall of Famer. Jotting this all down. There's a lot in there. Future Hall of Famer defeated Challenger by KO4. Uh, So Challenger means that the Future Hall of Famer, one would assume, was a champion defending a title. One day after you turned 12. So I don't know off the top of my head your exact year of birth, but you're somewhere around eight or nine years older than me, I think. So let's say... All right, so you were, if you were born in roughly, and you don't obviously have to tell me if I've got the right year or not, but uh, if you were born in something like 66 or 67, plus 12... It's a smidge later, I'll tell you oh, that. Okay, <laughs> I've, I've aged you, huh? I've made you older <laughs> than you really are. All right, let's say you were born in uh, 68 or 69 then, and so mm-hmm. that would put this fight in like 70 or 71... I wish no, I knew you were... No, do, do better math. Do 12 years old. Uh, you're right. <laughs> wow, that was terrible I'm math. Help you, I so thank bad. thank you. Yes, that would, have been a, that would have been a nightmare if I was like plugged into 1970-ish fights for the entire <laughs> length of the game. All right, 1980 or 81. Uh, and I wish I knew off the top of my head what your actual birthday is to know exactly what time of year. Uh, and I should if I were a good friend, but I don't. I'm not. Okay. So now, so now, 1980 or 1981, we have a future Hall of Famer defending his title successfully by fourth round knockout. And I may, I may know the fighter and not the fight off the top of my head, or I may be totally off. But the first person who's coming to mind is Michael Spinks. I feel like he did probably have some KO4 title defenses. I'm just not sure who they might have been against. So I'm going to say Michael Spinks. Did he KO in for Mike Rossman? I don't no, know if they I'm... even fought each other, but, <laughs> but okay. So I will tell you that isn't the fight. And, uh, but you're not telling me whether I have the, the hall of famer, correct? Or do you want to tell me if I'm off track on that or don't, you don't have to say anything. If, uh, yeah. yeah. yeah okay. I'll tell you that that isn't, that isn't the fight. Okay, right. that isn't the fight. All right. Okay. I will say, clue number two, this is by no means the winner's most famous fight, but it is frequently cited as his most brutal KO win. Okay. Uh, 
not his most famous fight, but most brutal KO win. All right, so trying to think of other people who went on to the Hall of Fame who were champions uh, in 1980-81 range. Uh, Larry Holmes would have been the heavyweight champ. Uh, Again, not specifically recalling a KO4 off the top of my head. It could be way off in terms of the uh, where on the weight scale I'm thinking here. Uh, Middleweight would have been Hagler. Did he have a KO4? Uh, I feel like he... Okay, all right, I have a guess. Okay. I th- there are two guys who we knocked out somewhere in the KO three four five range around this time, uh, and neither would be his most famous, but they were brutal knockouts. Did Marvin Hagler KO Mustafa Hamshow in four? Oh, he might have done. That's a very good guess. <laughs> it's not. It's not the fight. I will tell you that you're getting warmer. Okay, I'm getting warmer. So it's either Hagler or someone close in weight to Hagler. Okay. All right. I'm ready for the third clue. You're ready for the third clue. Okay. It was the champion's first title defense. It was the challenger's second title tilt three years after being stopped by Carlos Palomino in his first attempt at a title. Okay. So Carlos Palomino was definitely a welterweight. Tommy Hearns was a welterweight who would have been around making his first defense at this time. Uh... Who did Tom? If I, if I ha, if I have the right guy, I mean I don't. Could it have been? It wouldn't be Leonard's. Well, it could be Leonard's first defense after he beat Benitez to win his. That was definitely '79, so it could have been 1980. Again, not knowing the exact year of mm-hmm. your birth and th- thus not knowing whether I'm talking 1980 or '81 has mm-hmm. me a little uncertain here. Read that. Read See, the, the, this is this is why you should be a better friend. <laughs> I know. Right. This is the reason. You want to hear that clue again? Yeah, give me the clue again so I can get all the details out of that. Okay. It was the champion's first title defense. It was the challenger's second attempt at a title three years after being stopped late. Uh, That was a detail I didn't give you before. Being stopped late by Carlos Palomino in his first title attempt. Okay. Um, All right. So three years after. So this was someone who challenged for a title round about 77 or 78 and lost to Palomino. Got another shot and lost in four to probably either Hearns or Leonard. <laughs> um, and I can't remember. So Hearns won his title from Pepino Cuevas. Who might he have made his first defense against? It is not coming to mind. Who did? Th- I feel like Ray Leonard didn't have a lot of KO fours on his resume at that time, but he could have. Uh, and I, now I'm reaching the point where I guarantee there are lots of people listening who are screaming at me. Come on, how are you forgetting this fight? Uh, uh, possibly. Is, <laughs> is it actually? It's not a very famous fight. I, I have a guess. I forget exactly when Leonard fought this guy and what the exact result was. But let's say Ray Leonard KO four. Davy Boy Green. You are correct. Sir. All right, I got there. Whew. Just before yeah. the audience could start to call me an idiot. Yeah. You are correct. Um, okay. Yeah, and it was a difficult. Was, I don't know if you find this when you when you when you're putting these together, but I find sometimes a fight gets into my head and I can't like 
that's it. I can't shift it for anything else. It's like, <laughs> that fight is in my head. It's going to be that fight. And the reason that popped into my head is, I think it was Top Rank just recently on their social media channels just just put out highlights of it, saying mm. this is Ray's most brutal KO. And I happened to see an interview also this week with Dave Boy Green. And so I'm like, mm. you know what? It's it's in my head. It's 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 going to happen. So um, the other two yes, clues would that. have definitely... Uh, at least make sure you knew the, the identity of the champion. Um, clue number four would have been, in his next outing, the winner would suffer the first defeat of his pro career, which he immediately avenged in infamous fashion. Okay, right. And so given where you were, and like, is it Leonard, is it Hearns? Is that, like, you right. would have, I think, picked up on that. <laughs> yes. Um, and I think if you didn't, if you couldn't, get Dave Boy Green, I think it would have been, I don't know what I could have done for you to get Dave Boy Green. So right. uh, I did make it clear with the final clue that he was British. Uh, the loser retired a few fights later with a record of 37 and four, having been British and European champion. And then the, if you still, for some reason, hadn't gotten the winner, <laughs> I was like, the winner retired with a record of 32 and one, came back two years later, we retired right. after one fight, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, and you know, this, put, et cetera, et cetera. <laughs> this was one that it would be possible for some people, myself included, perhaps, uh, to to never quite get there if I couldn't conjure the name. Because that so I wasn't following boxing at that time. I, so what was the <laughs> exact date of that fight? March 31st, 1980. Okay, so uh, your birthday is March 30th. I'm jotting that down, and, I'll, and I've forgotten <laughs> it already. <laughs> um, so March 31st, 1980, I was not quite five yet and uh, was not following boxing. I have, don't think I've ever seen this fight in its entirety. I'm sure I've seen the ending. I just sort of know it as a line on his resume, and right. probably my lack of knowledge about it was exposed when I called him Davy Boy Green and you kept saying Dave Boy Green. Am I just calling him Davy Boy Green no, because Davey, of Davy Boy uh, Smith? No, no, <laughs> Pro actually wrestler? no. But people did call him Davy Boy. Okay, uh, all right. I didn't totally Green make well. that up like, out of thin. Yeah, his name okay. was Dave Green and it became right. Dave Boy and then Davy Boy. So yes, no, okay. that's fine. But I don't know that I knew that he was British. So that, that last clue oh, really okay. might not have helped me. You may have had to go with like his last name is a color or something like that. <laughs> I almost did that as well. I was thinking about that. And as I look at the I am glad that you got it in three because if you hadn't got it, like you would have gotten <laughs> Leonard and then right and just kept trying to. Re and at, by clue five, I'm I would have been quietly uh, going on box rack and not telling you <laughs> to avoid the ultimate embarrassment. <laughs> yeah, yeah. In hindsight, and I did think about that actually. That that yeah, there was was there some way to you know put green into 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 the clues and that probably should have done but i'm glad that you got it actually All you were right. getting so close <laughs> right first Hagler and then Hearns. i'm like oh you're getting there and and i'll just offer you a final thank you again for steering me away from 1970 and 71 <laughs> that could have been a disaster <laughs> yes yes i mean you know we play fair here we right. play hard but we play fair Yes, I appreciate that. <laughs> All right. Um, on March 25th, Caleb Plant will meet David Benavidez on Showtime pay-per-view and what promises to be an excellent super middleweight encounter. And in Plant's corner will be one of the best trainers in the business today, who also happens to be one of the best regular guests on the podcast, Stephen Breadman Edwards. Thanks for joining us and welcome back to the Showtime Boxing Podcast. Hey, how you guys doing? We're all right. Thanks. Uh, thanks for joining us once again. And I have to say congratulations on a very successful start to your teaming up with Caleb Plant. Uh, you have him in this big fight in March. And of course, in your first fight together, he scored a one punch KO of Anthony Durrell, which uh, I considered the 2022 knockout of the year. Um, so first question, simply, 
What was it like watching that go down? Did you know Caleb had that in him? Um, I did, but you know what, guys? I really don't want to keep like talking about his power because, like, you know, that's just that's just one fight, and you know, you just uh, I don't want him like sometimes subconsciously you can fall in love with things. So that's just one fight, you know, we did it and we just move on, you know. Um, I don't want to keep bringing it up because he's a boxer and I want him to stay that way, you know. And, uh, you know, it's done and over with now. It's a great win, but I just kind of just, like, just for me personally, I just want to move forward. And I know that the promotion is riding the coattail of a very you know, spectacular knockout. And that's what good promotions do. So they keep showing that fight with Anthony over and over again, but it's just one night, you know, but to answer you, yes, I did know he had it in him. Um, you know, he just goes about doing it in a different kind of way. But uh, the first time I held the pads with him, I could tell that um, he had some power in his shots. He just wasn't applying it the way that he, uh, that he could have to get uh, better results. Okay. Um, well, well, then let me ask you a, a different sort of question about uh, Caleb. Not not about uh, his uh, as a boxer or a puncher, but just as a person. I'm curious what what kind of person he is. Because my handful of times talking to him, he seems very serious, not the smiley, jokey type. Is that just because I don't know him well, or is that actually who he is? Like the ultimate dead serious dude. Um. You know what? Everybody has different layers to their personality. Some days just wake up feeling different, you know, like he's funny, you know, like anybody else. Some days he comes in serious. Some days he come in with a bad mood. You know, every day is not going to be peaches and cream, you know. Um, I get along with him, you know what I mean? But, um, you know, I get along with him from my perspective. I'm a trainer, you know what I mean? So I see him for two hours a day. We work on different things. I tell him what I think he needs to do. He may give me some feedback and I go about my business and he goes home with his family. So, you know, from my perspective, I see that a lot of fighters in his weight division don't like him and stuff like that. But I like him because, you know, I don't have to fight him. And I got, you know, but, you know, sometimes like he's a funny guy, tries to crack jokes in camp, you know, guys talk stuff, you know, it's all, all different sides of his personality, but he's a pretty cool laid back guy. Uh, I think uh, I think he takes boxing very serious, but uh, he has a, a a light side to him with a sense of humor, also. Okay. Um. So you've been in the corner opposite David Benavides before when you trained Kyron Davis uh, against him in November 2021. Funny because David keeps reminding me of that. <laughs> oh, does he? <laughs> He's reminding me of that, man. He keeps talking about the Karan Davis fight, man. It's crazy, man. <laughs> he brings that up, man. I'm like, Jesus, bro. You keep bringing that fight up all the time, man. <laughs> you know, that's interesting. You know, I, I was curious because, you know, from the outside, it, it rarely looks as if there's anything surprising about what Benavidez does, but stopping him from doing what he does is a whole other thing. And from having had that opportunity to prepare for, prepare for him once already, I, I'm curious without giving your game plan away, what is it that makes him dangerous? Where is he vulnerable? Now, is there anything you learned from that fight that you're going to be able to apply with Caleb on, in March? You always learn a lot from every fight if you're a good trainer. You know, it doesn't, you know, you just, you just, if you have the ability to observe and solve problems, you always learn a lot. So I definitely learned some stuff in that fight. Um, 
you know, David keeps bringing that fight up to me, and I'll find it funny. You know, like, it's, to me, it's just competitive banter. Like, I don't really, mm. like, you know, it doesn't bother me. You know, the guy's young enough to be my son, so I'm definitely not going <laughs> to be getting to a back and forth or argument with him or anything like that. But he keeps bringing that fight up, and, you know, and he keeps saying, like, well, his coach knew how to throw the towel in with Karan. And I'm saying, like, that's not uh, um insult to me. Like, I threw the towel in because the kid took the fight on two weeks' notice, mm. and I wasn't going to let him get hurt for a couple hundred thousand dollars or be part of David Benavidez's highlight reel. You mm. know, like, I let him lead the ring with some dignity. He didn't go down. He fought back. He got his pound of flush in, and he didn't act like a coward. Like a lot of other David's opponents, they get in the ring with him, and they just ball up and just let David just beat on him. Karan was actually fighting him back and landing his shots. And um, he earned his respect that night. You know, um, he didn't win, but, you know, David was very complimentary of him, and he um, shook his hand after the fight like two gladiators do. And, you know, he gave he gave Karan his props, and he thanked him. So it was kind of surprising when he started bringing up, you know, I beat your other guy up. But I understand it's kind of, you know, it's all part of the game. But mm-hmm. I learned a lot that night. You know, the number one thing that I learned is that without going into details of uh, any technical stuff, is that you got to be a man with David because he'll take your heart. Yeah, he, he's a he's a he's a he's a he's a will taker. He's a spirit taker. You see these guys get in the ring with him. They beat before he even hits them with a punch because he takes their heart. He breaks their will. He he, he breaks you. And Karan wasn't scared of him, you know? And uh, that's why he was able to go seven rounds with no stamina. That's why he was able to land his punches because he wasn't afraid. Like, like, look at David Lemieux. As soon as David hit him, he just falling all over the place. You know what I'm saying? Them guys, they be scared. They, they'd be scared of Benavidez. You know, it takes your heart. You got to be a man. You got to be willing to stand up to him. You got to be willing to go through something to beat him because he's going to put you through some stuff. But you got to be willing to go through it. So from an emotional standpoint, if you don't have no heart, you can't beat him. Mm. You can't. You're going to you take your heart. You got to be a dog. But when you get on the other side of that, he's a human being just like anybody else. Mm. You know, and... um. Karan fought him. You know what I mean? I'm just going to say that he fought him. Like he landed his share of punches. He did. He, he did a lot better than some of David's opponents who had eight weeks to train and get ready, hmm. you know? And I'm not saying he could beat David if he had eight weeks, but I'm pretty confident in saying he wouldn't have got stopped. I'm pretty confident. You know what I mean? Right. I threw the towel in because I knew he couldn't get a second win. You know, he, when, he, we, when we got the call for that fight, Karan was 186 pounds. And if you notice it, David weighed 169 and the fight was a 10 rounder. And the reason why that was is because, you know, Karan, he didn't have no, he wasn't scared to take the fight. He just said, man, I don't know if I could lose 18 pounds in 16 days. Could you see if you can get me a couple of pounds and uh, maybe make it a 10 rounder? Cause I, cause I'm not, I'm, I'm nowhere near 12 round shape. So in order to save the show, you know, they had sold out the Footprint Arena. It was a big crowd in there. It was a homecoming. We, you know, they they gave, not really gave in to our demands, but they, they allowed us to do it. So if you notice, that's why David came in 169, because he didn't have to make 168 for that fight. Mm, gotcha. um, but you got to be a man with him. You can't be afraid of him. You can't be intimidated. Yes, he's going to hit you. Your mind has to be made up. 
And one thing about Quran is Quran's a dog. He don't lack any heart issues, you know. So um, that's the that's the number one thing I took from that fight, without talking about technical stuff. Sure. All right. Uh, let, let's get your thoughts on a few other topics, Brad. Uh, Caleb Plant isn't the only big name to switch trainers recently. Uh, Anthony Joshua is going to be working with reigning trainer of the year, Derek James, to prepare for his fight with Jermaine Franklin on April 1st. What do you think of this partnership? And, and how concerned are you when you see a fighter like AJ changing trainers repeatedly, basically every time he loses? Um, I'm not concerned because it's not my business. But it it is a red flag. You know, I kind of look at a guy and I say, it usually shows that they're not accepting responsibility for the loss. Hmm. But I will say that I try to judge everything on a case-by-case basis because sometimes it can be the trainer's fault. I've seen trainers that are lazy. I've seen trainers that you would think that they would know certain things, but they really don't. I've seen trainers who just are not on the level and, you know, the guy was kind of being loyal towards him for, you know, maybe an affiliation with a manager or they knew him a long time. I've seen that happen. Um, with Anthony Joshua particularly, I don't know Anthony. Mm-hmm. Uh, I do like him as a fighter. I wish him the best. And Derek James is my man. So, I'm, you know, I'm happy that he got the job. But from Anthony, it seems like that he's just going through some things emotionally. You know, and a lot of times that happens when you are accessible, you're available for everybody else's opinion. And everybody kind of thinks that you, they want to offer you what you should be doing as far as what you need to do to be successful. And that's why I'm not available to people's opinions. I'm not accessible. Nobody can just randomly call me up and say, well, Caleb should do this or this guy should do that. I don't play that can't just do that to me that that screws up your line of thing next thing you know you be in the gym subconsciously trying different things and it'll be because of somebody offered you their opinion so i don't i don't allow that to happen to myself um i think that fighters for the most part you know obviously nobody's stuck with a trainer but i like to see guys grow with their trainer and get better with their trainer and make it because <laughs> All trainers talk different. We say like my terminology for the same thing that Caleb's dad's terminology for is different. So I've had to say to him a couple of times, like, what do you guys call that? Because he's been telling me different things for his whole life. You know, and I come in and I want the same exact thing, but I say it differently because I'm from Philadelphia. Trainers have a different way of um, going about doing things and you know, I, I'm just careful about when a guy keeps training. I had a guy come to me, and he had about five or six different trainers. And I was just – I looked at his – I told his manager, like, that's usually a red flag, that they're not, you know, um, being accountable for the things that went wrong. And I'm not saying that is specific in Anthony's case because mm. I don't know him, but that usually is a sign of that. Like, I thought Robert Garcia did a great job right. in the second Usyk fight. He just can't beat him, yeah. you know. But I thought he performed well. He just can't beat him, you know. And I know it was a job that a lot of trainers wanted. Uh, but I think Derek's going to do great with him. Derek has a real unique style. Derek is an extremely smart guy. 
And But at the end of the day, no trainer is a miracle worker. The fighter has to buy into it. And he has to allow himself to be coached. And he has to have confidence that what the coach is telling him is going to work. He has to allow himself to be coached. So um, hopefully it works out. You know, I watch Oscar De La Hoya, who's one of my favorite fighters, constantly switch trainers. And whenever I looked at his career, I always said to myself, as great as Oscar was, and he was special, he's a special fighter, he could have been even greater. He could have been on that Leonard Duran, Hagler level of greatness, where he's probably a little bit like a notch below that. Because it seemed like that he would always fight the wrong fight in big fights because he has so many trainers. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and you'll look at Oscar and say, damn, he didn't. Like, if you watch him fight in 96 and then you watch him fight in 2000, he looks different and everything because you're constantly going around to different trainers. You hit the pads at a certain trainer's rhythm. You do things at a person, at a trainer's rhythm. The way a trader trains is almost like his fingerprint. And uh, when, when you, if you rub his fingerprint through ink, if he gets in trouble, your fingerprint is your fingerprint. How you see things is how you see him. And I always thought that kept Oscar from being like that special, special, special fighter. And he was super special, but there's levels to special. And I thought he was like the level below the Leonard's, the Mayweather's, you know, those kind of guys. Because when it was when it's time to solve a problem, you want to have you know, you and your trainer have you, your own way of solving that problem. And Oscar always seemed confused at the elite, elite level. I'm talking about when he's fighting Hopkins and fighting Mayweather, things like that. Fights that he, he, was, he could have he won. He got the talent to win. He was in the fights. But it seemed like he made the wrong adjustments in those big fights. So that's the person I kind of look at and say, man, if Oscar would have had one trainer and they grew together on how to solve different things – you know, a lot of his fights that he took later in his career, he could have won them instead of having losses on his record. Yeah. You know, so that's this that's not specifically for Anthony Joshua, but that's just all train all fighters that like constantly leave their trainer. I look at that and be like, ah, you know, after maybe the third or fourth time, I'm like, it can't be the trainer's fault every time. Right. You know what I mean? So this is definitely something to uh, pay attention to. Uh, let's close with your thoughts on a couple of Philly fighters. Um, we had Boots Ennis on the podcast a couple of weeks ago, and he told us he was actually pretty happy to have gone 12 rounds for the first time in his most recent outing. And of course, every fighter has to go through those kind of fights uh, on their way up and, and learn from them. So what did you think of Boots' performance and, and what would you like to see next from him? Um, first of all, that's my guy, man. He's a great kid. I love that kid. Uh, him and his dad, you know, they're really, really good people. Um, I didn't think it was his best performance, but I didn't think it was as bad as people tried to make it out to be. You know, the expectations was he's a knockout machine and everybody wanted the knockout and nobody knew the other opponent. But that guy has some elite level feet and he wasn't really in there to win. He was kind of in there to neutralize boots and not let boots get off. So that's hard to deal with at the world-class level when a guy's not committing to his punches. And he has some great feet. You know, he knew how to move and switch directions. And that's hard for anybody to deal with, especially if the guy's not punching. Um, to critique Boots slightly, I thought he was getting a little bit anxious. He spent around a couple of times where he was throwing punches and his body spun around completely. 
And I thought he was like listening to the crowd. The crowd was like telling him, and he kept like looking out in the crowd. It seemed like he was slightly distracted. But all fighters need to go through this. They need that. They need to see that. They need to feel that so they can become better fighters. Yeah. And um, I thought I give him maybe a B minus. Wasn't an awful performance. It just wasn't, you know, um, it just wasn't the best that we've seen him. And uh, hopefully he gets a title shot next or, you know, a, a natural fight to make would be him versus the guy who beat Rashidi Ellis. That would be a natural fight to make since they both, both fought on the same card. Hmm. All right. So so Boots is a guy who we all agree is, is on his way to the top. Uh, another Philly fighter who is already at the top and, and looking to really cement his greatness is uh, is your guy Scooter, Stephen Fulton, uh, who who. Looks like he's not only uh, going to be taking on Noya in a way, but doing so in Japan. Um, I know that you've been impressed over the years with uh, with Inoue. What does it say about Stephen Fulton that he's taking this fight, and, and what do you see as the keys to determining the outcome in that one? That's another one of my guys. I love yep. Scooter. Um, <laughs> Scooter actually trained at the same gym that we... Boots is not from our gym, but Scooter is actually from our gym. We all trained at the same gym for years. Hmm. Uh, yeah, so that gym produced, man, three, four world champions out of the same gym. Hmm. Uh, but um, I think he has a big set of balls going over there. <laughs> yeah. I think he now has a good, strong argument for being the world's best fighter. But I think that Scooter has a legit chance to win. I think that if he gets his resources intact, as far as traveling and food and different things, and Japan's not around the corner. So he's going to have to have a team of people to prepare all of the things that he needs to do with the food, the weight cut, the gym, all that stuff matters. You know, everything matters. He has to get over there in time so his body could get acclimated. And um, I think it's a great fight. And I, I would not be surprised if Scooter beat him, I wouldn't be surprised if this was a Bernard Hopkins versus Felix Trinidad kind of fight where the smaller guy is looked at as the puncher, but when he goes up against a bigger guy, he, he doesn't have the same effect on him that uh, that he had versus other guys. I can I can see Scooter. I'm, I'm just telling you guys, it's going to be a huge, huge physical difference when they get in front of each other. I'm just telling y'all, it's more than just 122 and 118. He now started at 108. Mm-hmm. So 118 was the weight that he just recently was at, but he started at 108. Scooter will have to cut his arm off to make 108. Right. He probably couldn't make 108. Probably the last time he saw 108, he was 14, 15 years old. Right. You know what I mean? So it's a big, big, big difference. Scooter is going to be... I don't go even go by height and reach because that's a person that writes that down. They just go by what the fighter tells them. I'm telling you, Scooter's going to be about 10 to 15 pounds naturally bigger in terms of muscle mass and things, bone density. He's going to have a huge reach advantage. He's going to have a nice height advantage. The the size difference is going to be drastic. And Scooter can box – He's not a big puncher, but he can hit you hard enough. He got an inside game. He got an all-around game, and he's very, very tough mentally. Um, he now has a real shot at losing this fight, a real shot. 
This is this is a true 50-50 fight because this ain't a pound-for-pound fight. This is two guys getting in the ring fighting each other. So it's different, you know, and I just think that the size difference, when the talent is this close, the size difference means a lot. You know, the only, you know, he now is a bigger puncher than Scooter for the guys he's been hitting, but he's hitting a hundred and he's hitting a kid that walks around. That's probably Scooter probably walking around 145 pounds in his real life. You know what I mean? So that's, it's going to be a lot. I'm telling you, he's a strong, strong kid. He, he and it's going to be a tough fight for him now. And Scooter can adjust mentally. Mentally, he's really, really good at, at making fast adjustments. He can process really fast. He can say something. You can tell him something, and then he can just go out and do it right away. He has a very, very high, a high speed mind. I think it's going to be a great fight, and uh, I know Scooter's probably going to be the underdog. But he has a real legit chance of winning this fight. He's not going over there to lose. He got a lot of determination. So uh, last thing, then we we usually uh, find a way to ask you a little something about uh, about what fights you might be betting on. You you keep saying uh, you you think he's got a Fulton's got a great chance to win here, but he's going to be a little bit of an underdog. Uh, do you bet fights like that, or when you're close to somebody, do you like to leave the betting out um, of it because because you know you're, you're tight with the guy and you don't want to also have money involved. You know what? To be honest with you, I'll bet anything that I feel the opportunity that I just, if I feel it, like okay. if I'm near the casinos and I feel it, I don't have a problem with betting Scooter. I wouldn't tell him, you know, <laughs> I wouldn't put no pressure on him, but right. I bet on, I bet on guys that I train, you know what I mean? It okay. just depends on how I feel. Depends on if I have access to the casinos. Uh, I would, uh, it would be worth a stab at Scooter. I got to see the odds. I think Tony Harrison is another live underdog. Mm-hmm. Um, I think he's a live underdog. Um, I heard um, uh, Brian Mendoza is uh, maybe may fighting. Uh, what's the tall kid's name? Fundora. Fundora. Right. I think Mendoza's live. Mendoza just beat Jason Rosario. I think he's live in that fight. Um, trying so to I'm- think. I'm looking at some of the odds right now. Some of these, some of these aren't up yet. I'm not seeing a price for for Scooter's fight, for example. I guess maybe because it's not official, but I do see Tony Harrison uh, is a is plus two hundred. So at that price, he he's someone you, you'd think about. Yeah, yeah, he's definitely someone I think about. Zoo and um, you know, Zoo Zoo Zoo's not unbeatable. You know, um, you guys got to give me some fights that's coming up, and I could kind of do it better. <laughs> Because I'm trying to think of guys off the top of my head, uh, right. but I can't, I can't right. think of anything right well, now. But um, well, I guess I guess we could end where we began, and I'll just mention that uh, I'm looking right now at uh, your guy Caleb is plus two twenty five. Now I don't necessarily expect you to bet on him or to or to tell us if you would, but uh, just a, a final reaction to seeing that price. Does that uh, seem um, fair you to you? That's about right. You okay. know, I understand why David is the favorite. I understand why more people think he's going to win. Then, then think that we're going to win. I respect all of that. Like, you know, that's everybody's opinion. But David's undefeated. He's bigger. He's looked at as the bigger puncher. And he's the guy that seemed like he was pursuing the fight more. So, you know, I think that's fair. You know, I, w- I didn't expect Caleb to be the favorite. Right. But you get more props if you win the fight, you know, that most people think you're going to lose. And, um... You know, when the fight came to me and they asked me about the fight, I said, take the fight. You know what I mean? Like, Benavidez is a great fighter, but you can't look at a man like he's invincible. 
You know, you can't look at him like he's not a human being. So um, I didn't, I didn't, I didn't view it like insurmountable odds. I looked at it as a tough fight that we got the ability to win if we put everything together. That's how I, that's how I viewed the fight. That's how I still view it. You know, and um, we'll see. You know, we'll we'll, we'll see. Come March twenty fifth, uh, I know it's a tough fight. I know that David Benavidez is tremendous talent. Uh, but I just believe that uh, I just believe in Caleb, man. You know, uh, as humbly as I could say it, he he showed me some things in the gym that I just can't. I just couldn't believe that he was able to do. I was like, wow, you know, um, this guy was not showing his whole bag of tricks and fights. Mm-hmm. You know, he just wasn't. Um, and that's all I could say. You know, I don't give fighter blind confidence. You know, I don't just go around saying that a guy can do something that I haven't seen them do. You know, that's important for me. I, I don't believe in just turning these switches on and off. One day you go turn the switch on and there won't be no juice in there. I have to see you do things in the gym and then be able to have that kind of confidence for a real fight. And, man, he, he does some things in the gym that make you just go, wow. You know, like, I was actually like, like, maybe getting on his nerves like how come you don't never show this stuff in fight? <laughs> my god but you know like i probably wouldn't be training him if he showed that stuff in fight <laughs> because he wouldn't have needed me you know what i mean like he just he just he's a talented guy he just very talented. he, he could have done other things in his life if um he didn't box he could have maybe played football or another sport or something like that he's a very very talented kid so, you know, I get to see things from him that everybody else doesn't see. And, um, you know, again, every fight is different. Hopefully it shows up on March 25th, you know, the way some of the things showed up on October 15th against uh, Anthony Durrell. Well, we wish you the best of luck on March 25th, Brad. And thanks so much indeed for joining us and giving us some insight. And, uh, yeah, all the best. And we'll talk to you after that fight, I'm sure. Yep. Thank you for having me. Appreciate it. Thanks, Brad. Great talking to you as always. All right. All right. Thanks so much uh, to Brad. And let's finish off this week with the news. And our main event this week focuses on someone we just talked about, uh, Anthony Joshua. Uh, His first bout since losing his rematch with Alexander Usyk has been set. And it's against Showbox alum Jermaine Franklin, who we most recently saw put in a solid but losing effort against Dillian White. So on one level, there seems a significant step back for Joshua. Franklin, surely, on paper at least, AJ's easiest opponent for a while, um, even if he isn't a total pushover. We've often been critical of Franklin in the past, you and I. So what do you think about him as AJ's next opponent? So, I mean, it was definitely past time for AJ to take on a softer opponent. Uh, mm. You know, not not a pushover here, but 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 softer, someone that on paper... He shouldn't have to worry about actually losing to. He, he needed one of these. Um, dating mm. back to 2017, his last nine fights, he faced Vladimir Klitschko, Carlos Takam, Joseph Parker, Alexander Povetkin, Andy Ruiz twice, Kubrat Pulev, and Usyk twice. Um, Pulev and Takam, okay, those two are nothing special. They, they were fringe contender types who AJ couldn't realistically find a way to lose to, um, the other seven fights were all against yeah. basically championship level or, or top contender level heavyweights. I think it would have been a huge mistake facing another opponent on that level next coming mm-hmm. off the two Usyk losses. You know, the, there was, of course, that, that talk of facing Tyson Fury. 
that would basically have been a cash out fight. Yeah. Uh, um, and I'm glad he's not facing Joe Joyce or Deontay Wilder or, or even Otto Valin. I think, you know, win this and then you can take on an opponent like that next. Mm-hmm. Um, Anthony Joshua is 33 now, which he's not young anymore, but it's, it's still not old for a heavyweight. And mm. right at this moment, he just really needs a win under his belt, uh, a fight where he can make some mistakes and, and work some things out and get away with it. Um, and I keep thinking about the the Usyk losses. If you feel that Usyk is a great fighter, and most of us do, then those aren't bad losses, you know? Bo- both were competitive. Both went the distance. Joshua lost by a round or two each time and had plenty of moments. He's still a very good heavyweight. He just can't beat Usyk, and uh, in my view, would never beat Fury either. Um, but he may still possibly be the third best if he can click yeah. with his new trainer, Derek James, and succeed with him and stick with him and not, along the way, suffer from some extreme lack of confidence. Uh, Jermaine Franklin has some talent. He has some skills. He's nothing special. And, uh, and and there's no one spectacular quality that he brings to the table. So I think he's pretty much just right for AJ right now. Um, I'm not sure AJ is necessarily going to look great against him, but but he'll look good enough. I expect he'll win. Maybe he'll land something big and get the KO. And then he and Derek James can get to work on making one more serious run. Yeah. All right. Our news undercard this week is mostly filled with fights announced or confirmed. Uh, one of your favorites, Mrodjan Akhmedaliev, will defend his 122-pound belt against Marlon Tapalas on April 8th on the undercard of Jesse Bam Rodriguez's flyweight title fight against Christian Gonzalez. That'll be on DAZN. Uh, on the same date, April 8th, Shakur Stevenson will face Shuichiro Yoshino in Newark, New Jersey, as he fully moves up to lightweight. That's a title eliminator for those who care about such things. Uh, (laughs) Gilberto Zerto Ramirez, who put in a solid effort but lost his O against Dimitri Bivol last time out, returns March 18th on his own and faces Gabe Rosado, who is on a three-fight losing streak since his shock one-punch KO of Bektamir Melikuziev. Meanwhile, a star fighter who beat Rosado a full decade ago, Gennady Golovkin, uh, has vacated one of his middleweight belts, but advisor John Hornerer told Dan Raphael that Triple G is not ready to retire. And lastly, the Javante Davis-Ryan Garcia situation. We've talked about the potential pitfalls on the road to getting the two of them in the ring together on the planned date of April 15th, including Tank's legal problems. We now know that Davis will be arraigned on February 23rd for the domestic violence case that at one point threatened to derail his pay-per-view win over Hector Garcia. And that date is one week after he will appear in court in Baltimore in relation to an alleged hit and run in that city in November 2020. And you probably heard this week about some push and pull in the final details of the negotiations for the Ryan Garcia fight. As we record this, The rumors are looking positive. Maybe it'll be official by the time you hear this podcast. But in the meantime, Garcia's promoter, Golden Boy Promotions, has been floating the prospect of a fight between their man and Regis Progre if, for legal or other reasons, the fight with Davis doesn't happen. Kieran, lots to discuss there. What stands out to you? Um, A couple of things out of that list. First of all, I hate the idea of Zerdo against Rosado. Um... I think it's time to start worrying about Gabe's continued career again. Um, he fought so valiantly against Maciej and Jaime Munguia, and then he pulled off that shock win that you mentioned against Beck the Bully. But and, and because he did that, we sort of went on the, oh, you know what? Gosh, Gabe's got plenty in him after all, and maybe we shouldn't be on him to retire. But 
yeah, since then, as you said, he, he's lost th- three in a row. He, he's losing them largely quite widely. Um, and because he's so tough, he's he's in there and taking his punishment for 10 or 12 rounds. I think putting him in with a Zerdo who's going to want to make a statement after that Bivol fight is uh, uh, just a terrible idea. I I, I do wish now again that Gabe Rosado would retire, to be honest. I mean, it's his life, obviously, but uh, I don't like the matchmaking at all. Um, I kind of wish his former conqueror, Gennady, would retire at this point, too. Mm. Um, he's got nothing left to prove. He's a first ballot Hall of Famer. Um, it kind of fell in the immediate aftermath of the third fight with Canelo that maybe some of the fire has even left him a little bit. Um, he's certainly declining rapidly and defense has never been a strongest suit so he's more likely to get hit um there are obviously still plenty of people he can beat at middleweight uh, plenty of pretty good uh fighters he can beat at middleweight but the likelihood of him joining the long 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 list of great champions who end up losing to someone who a couple of years previously just wouldn't have been fit to tie their shoes it just increases the more that he fights. And uh, I'd be really happy if Gennady also retired and we got to remember him at his peak. Um, but it doesn't sound like that's on the cards for him just yet. Uh, and let's hope that we are indeed moving much closer to Tank Garcia being made. Oscar De La Hoya, Ryan Garcia's promoter, I, you know, you wonder how much, honestly, sometimes he's completely engaged in what his promotional company is doing. And he's been throwing out a lot of stuff that you kind of alluded to uh, talking about pro gray. And then even after the latest round of reports that said, you know, that the rematch clause had been dealt with, he then, uh, uh, and that everything was on and it looks like it's, uh, there's good reason to be positive. He was going back onto social media going, Oh, well, you know, don't pay attention to that. There's still plenty to be, uh, to be sorted out. So um, I, I don't know quite what's going on there, but um, as it does appear that pretty much, Everyone associated with it who isn't Oscar de la Hoya seems confident publicly about that fight being made. And I kind of wonder if everybody wants uh, everything to be signed and in place before the first of those court appearances for Tank. You know, we kind of discussed this with Dan Rayfield the other week when he was talking about the Mayweather Kodo situation that, you know, Floyd went into that fight knowing that he'd go to jail afterwards, but he was sort of able to say, hey, I've got this fight coming up, so, you know, give me that latitude. I wonder if there's a little bit of a similar situation there, and that's why everybody wants to make sure it's done real soon. I don't know, but uh, the tea leaves suggest that that is going to be done real soon. And if it isn't done by the time people hear this, then probably pretty soon after that, I hope. Yeah, hopefully so. Um, yeah, the only the only thing that I really intended to comment on among these is would just be more piling on on how much I, too, hate Zerto versus Rosado. Mm-hmm. Uh, it just... You know, I'm I'm tempted to remind myself that that we said similarly awful things about Rosado against Daniel Jacobs, and, and yep. that ended up a close fight, and, and then Rosado got the win over Beck Bully. So so we risk being proven wrong a second time, yep. but I highly doubt it. I, I I think the Jacobs fight and the Beck Bully fight those were Rosado's last stand, and that this is going to be ugly against Zerto. And I, I like you, I really dislike this fight. 
Yeah, indeed. Um, I have one more quick news item to report, and it is a sad one. Um, Ron Lewis, who was for many years the boxing correspondent for the London Times and was lately a contributor to boxing scene, died suddenly on Friday morning at the age of just 54. Mm. Um, just the previous day, he had been at the press conference to announce Anthony Joshua against Jermaine Franklin. Eddie Hearn tweeted a photo of him sitting at the table talking to AJ. Um the very next morning, he apparently suffered a massive cardiac arrest and was gone. Um, Ron's kindness and popularity is reflected in the breadth and depth of outpourings of condolences and grief from the likes of Liam Smith and Lordly Harrison, Hearn, Frank Warren, among many others. Uh, rest in peace to you, Ron. Definitely. I, I didn't know him at all, but but I, I, I have to pass along my condolences. It's just tragic. 54 is way too young. Way too young, indeed. Um, that will do it for this week's edition of Showtime Boxing with Raskin and Mulvaney. Many thanks again uh, to Bradman Edwards for joining us. I always feel smarter after talking with him. <laughs> <laughs> um, be sure to catch Showbox this Friday, and we will be back next Monday to recap that card and to look ahead to the February 25th Showtime Championship Boxing card for Minneapolis, headlined by Supriel Matias against Jeremiah Ponce. Until and, then. And you'll do your top five list that you ducked this week. Sure, maybe. Yeah, sure. We'll see. Okay. <laughs> Possibly, maybe. Um, until then, I might still be researching it. It's, 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 a, it's, a, it's a tough, tough I put tough nothing subject. past you. <laughs> exactly. Remember, I will be doing my worst. Um, until then, everyone, thank you very much for listening. Be safe, be kind, and be well. <laughs>